0: It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United
1: States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome back to the National Security Hour on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network on iHeartRadio voice of freedom the out loud truth america out loud talk radio plays on iheart radio network you can also listen to our media player from any web browser in the world we have the best in class apps available on apple android and alexa where we stream 24 7 now you can also hear us on the podcast on the same apps all of our shows go up on the podcast typically one to two days after the broadcast is heard on iheart radio You can hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeart Podcasts, and many more. Be sure to subscribe and rate our show, the National Security Hour, on Apple Podcasts for us. Be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, and the videos so that we can help secure America's future. You could find out more about our show at AmericaOutloud.com. And don't forget, this is the National Security Hour. Your host today, Dr. Michael Scheuer and Colonel Mike, and we're happy to be back on guest hosting History Friday. We're also happy to have on our first guest on History Friday, and we want to introduce him to the audience of the National Security Hour. We want to welcome Murray Sabrin to History Friday on the National Security Hour. Murray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Colonel Mike. It's great to be with you and and Michael. Uh, Murray Sabrin has a very extensive background. And the reason we brought on Murray today, he can tell you what it's all about. Coming from another country back in the day, we call it history, okay? How people came in, where they came in from, and where he's gone from as a little boy coming into America and where he went in his life. And we're going to go and do a little recollection about the history of America, how the immigration process worked. And in fact, he has a new book. We're going to let him mention it later on in this third segment. Murray, tell us a little bit to the audience about your background.
2: Well, I'd be happy to. Um, I arrived in America with my older brother and parents, who were the only ones in their respective families to survive the Holocaust in their native Poland. Uh, we sailed from West Germany at the end of July of 1949 and arrived in New York City on August 6, 1949. It was a I don't remember that at all i was uh, two and a half years old but my father told me i was clinging to him all through the uh, voyage and when we arrived in america we were met by my uncle my mother's aunt and uncle from patterson new jersey and uh my uh, mother's aunt said to her, you you wrote me saying you had two boys, but what are you doing holding this little girl? And at that time, Mm -hmm. I had very long blonde hair. I could have passed (laughs) a a native German uh, uh, citizen. But uh, here I was in America in my mother's arms, and we settled in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, like a lot of uh, Jewish immigrant families at the end of World War II. Uh, My father got a job in a pencil factory at a dollar an hour, and we lived in a very small three room apartment with the toilet in the hallway shared with other families. The rent was $26 a month. And that was my first uh experience living in America is that uh, I didn't consider myself poor. I don't think the family considered itself poor. But uh a few years later my young, uh younger brother was born in May 1953 and we moved to the Bronx in August of 53, 4 years after we, we arrived to America in a beautiful uh, four bed a four room two bedroom apartment where my older brother and I had our own bedroom. And it was like heaven. We had a bathroom in the apartment with a nice tub and shower. It was, uh, and the rent was $73 a month. And so my mother mother was a little bit um, worried that, how are we going to make the rent? But my father got a job in a sheet metal factory making $3 an hour, and he did that for many years. And so uh, I went through the New York City public schools, and um, in junior high school, I thought I was going to be an architect, because I really liked the concept of building something. And when I got to high school, I took a mechanical drawing class, and I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't have the fire in the belly, as a lot of young people uh, have, in order to pursue a passion. I didn't have that passion passion, but I did have an interest in history and geography. So uh, uh, in, in junior high school, I decided to become a social studies teacher and became a history major and a geography minor at the Hunter College in the Bronx. I was the last graduating class from Hunter College, uh, which then became Lehman College in 1968 when I graduated. And so I went through college. This was the height of the Vietnam War. 1965, Johnson announced uh, we were going to have the Vietnam War um, expanded. And of course, uh, two years earlier, President Kennedy was assassinated in my senior year. And still, uh, that event still haunts me because um, in uh, a few months earlier, in June of 1963, he gave a, a wonderful commencement address at the American University stating that uh, we are on this small planet, planet Earth. We are uh, adversaries with the Soviet Union. They have nuclear weapons. We have nuclear weapons and have civilizations to continue. He said we have to have peace between our two countries. And five months later, he was assassinated. And uh, as you know, uh, there are people who think that Lee Harvey Oswald was a single shooter. And uh, I had doubts right from the beginning, because if he killed President Kennedy by himself and that was his mission, he was captured. Why didn't he say to the police and to the press, I did it, I, I uh, got around the FBI, the Secret Service, the Dallas police, and I killed President Kennedy because for whatever reason. And he said, I didn't kill the president, I even, haven't even been charged killing the president, and I'm a patsy. And as we know, there have been dozens and dozens of books and articles written about what really happened on that fateful day on November 22nd, 1963. And uh, again, I leave it up to the listeners to uh, go to all the literature that's out there and Google the Kennedy assassination and who really was behind it. And from what I heard uh, uh, many uh, years later is that this was uh, basically a hit job by the mafia, the CIA, and the deep state that wanted to get rid of Kennedy because he wanted to have rapprochement with the the Soviet Union. And of course, uh, a year earlier, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis where we nearly came to a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. And I remember vividly October 1962, a friend of mine and I were uh, on the street where we live in the West Bronx. And we were talking about the possibility of a mushroom cloud over Manhattan. So when you're 15 years old and you think that civilization is going to come to end because of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you start to really get worried about the the whole concept of nuclear weapons and big government growing up. I asked my parents about the the Holocaust and their experiences with it, how my father barely survived, my mother barely survived. And that's a story that uh, a lot of us uh, children of Holocaust survivors uh, have with them uh, growing up. And um, that that initially became uh, I became very skeptical of of, of big government and and the United States at the time. We didn't have the big government we have today because um, uh, in 1965, along with the Vietnam War, Johnson cemented the welfare warfare state with the passage of.
1: Okay, okay, we're going to get into that in a second. I just want to back up a second. So how old were you when Kennedy got killed?
2: I was a senior in high school. It It was a month before my 17th
1: birthday. Wow. Okay. I was in a barber chair. (laughs) <laughs> and I was in junior high school. And by the way, you went to Bronx High School high, Science, right? Yeah, that was a great experience.
2: I'll tell you, it was almost like being in college. The teachers were just magnificent. Yes. They taught us the subject matter. None of this woke stuff that's going on today. It was it was really uh, one of the best experiences of my life because you were with smart kids and phenomenal teachers.
1: But you know where I got you, Murray? I was a mechanical drawing genius. I went to Brooklyn Tech. (laughs) See that? I'm envious because I I, I just
2: love the concept of building because when we moved from Manhattan to the Bronx, my father and I were in the moving truck, and I was in the front seat, and we, uh, on, I think, First Avenue, we drove up... uh, to get to the Bronx, and I, we passed by the Empire State Building, and I was just flabbergasted. There was a building that tall in Manhattan, and that sort of sparked my interest as a youngster about uh, building, but I never pursued it. And as you know, you've got to have that passion and fire in the belly to become successful in any area that you want
1: to excel in. Well, you know, at the time, what they would do with the uh, Brooklyn Tech guys and guys going into college, they would have you as a junior draftsman a trainee worked for Sears Mm. and we made pretty good money, probably more than our fathers did in that time during the summer, you know, summer season. uh, Yeah. Let us work for the summer. It was like summer school. Dr. Mike, I'm going to let you jump in. And then we're going to talk about, look at the immigrant, immigration experience today. And Murray, Murray can verify this what's going on, uh, you know, where he's been in college. Go ahead, Dr. Mike.
2: What
3: kind of crime was there in your neighborhoods? And at that time, Murray,
2: well uh, yeah, I gr- I grew up not far from the uh, old NYU campus so uh, of um, New York University in the, in the West Bronx that's where the engineering school was the Hall of Fame the famous Hall of Fame that's overlooking um, uh the major Deegan Expressway in the Bronx and crime was at a minimal uh, although I must say I was mugged uh, with my friend in, um, in I think I was in 8th grade uh to uh to uh Kids uh, on bikes uh, stopped us. One had a chain and he put it to my head with a, a hook at the end. Said, "Give me your watch, or I'll, 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 I'll damage you." And I was a small kid at the time, so I gave him my watch, and that was that. Uh, we called the police, and um, we we scoured the neighborhood and couldn't find them. They, I don't. Th- I've never saw them before or after in that neighborhood. But anyway, it was a pretty safe neighborhood. You could go walk any time day and night and not feel that you're going to be molested or anything like that. It was essentially a Jewish-Irish neighborhood, and uh, everyone got along with each other, and um, it was great, playing stickball in the streets of the Bronx, um, uh, playing marbles in the summer. Did you play
1: stoopball? Did you play
2: stoopball? We played point. everything, softball at Van Cortlandt Park. I mean, it was a great experience, and the summers— Handball, handball too. Handball, and starting the summer of 1955, we went to the Catskill Mountains— uh, the Jewish Alps. Oh my Alps. gosh, that was the greatest. That was the greatest. Uh, we spent summers um, uh, growing up uh, in in June and uh, July and August. It was it was great. Uh, you you had a great neighbor to live in. Uh, you had great teachers. You had uh, a great summer in in the Catskill Mountains where it was cool at night and uh, nice in the daytime. And uh, that was my world experience. In addition, and this is something I've been writing about, about healthcare. Healthcare was pretty simple. Uh, your parents would take you to the doctor if you were ill enough to, to need a doctor's attention. They paid $5, no copay, no insurance. You get a prescription, you go to a local pharmacy, you pay a few bucks, you get an anti- antibiotics. And when my father needed a major operation in 1961, uh, he went to Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield covered it. I don't recall any uh, angst in the family that there was going to be major out-of-pocket expenses, and uh, things were simple. And then, of course, of course, in '65, when Medicare and Medicaid kicked in, that's when healthcare costs really began to skyrocket, in addition to the Federal Reserve's uh, funding, uh, helping to fund the Vietnam War and the Great Society programs, and we were off to the races with inflation at the time.
1: Well, Great Society, as of a few years back, was $15 trillion, LBJ's Great Society. And I think Heritage recently wrote, we're about up to $24 trillion, uh, on the Great Society disaster. Now, Murray, when you lived there, it was a livable place, the Bronx. How, how much later did they start burning out the buildings and just breaking them to, to, to crumbles? I remember Reagan did a visit up there in the 80s. Yeah. Well, I started teaching in the South Bronx
2: in 1968, right. and um, and then four years later, I went to graduate school full time. And I lived in one of the poorest congressional districts in in the country, District uh, Nine, I think it was, in, in, in the Bronx. And uh, and what we saw in the Late sixties, early seventies is because of rent control and all the other dysfunctional things happening in in the neighborhood. Uh, Buildings were being abandoned left and right by the property owners because of rent control. Here was a perfect example of how rent control destroys housing. And so Jimmy Carter visited there in 1976 when he was running for president, Reagan in 1980. And then in the eighties, the Bronx was burning. Uh, uh, When people attended Yankee Stadium in in the South Bronx, they could smell the smoke from some of the fires that were going on in in the neighborhood. And so, um, and then the city pumped a lot of money in to rehabilitate these buildings because these were sound buildings, but the insides uh, were gutted and uh, new housing came in at the cost of the taxpayers of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. And if you drove along the Cross Bronx Expressway looking south, you could see uh, it looked like a war zone. Housing was, yes. empty. uh, land was devastated and, and the you, heroin and the heroin and, and the drugs that came. Through. It was awful. It was awful. This was, this was during the Vietnam war, the, the late sixties, early seventies. And, um, and, uh, I don't think the neighborhoods have still recovered, uh, to, to a large extent. Uh, poverty was, uh, was widespread and, uh, the, the great society did something that no, uh, foreign power could do. It broke up the, the, uh, Black family broke up low-income families around the country because the government gave uh, substantial aid to families that didn't have a father at home. So you talk about government policy destroying the basic social unit in our society. That's the legacy of LBJ, and, and the fallout from that is kids were growing up without a father supervision, and uh,
1: leading to crime is, is a direct result of this. Did you ever think it would spiral out of control the way it is now? We got the last couple of minutes for the first segment. Tell us about that. Did you ever think of that? Did you as you were teaching? Uh, I just realized that
2: something was terribly wrong in the late '60s when I, I started uh, reading Ayn Rand's *The Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal*, and then I read Atlas Shrugged in 1971, and then next to the wage-price controls in 1971, and I said, "We ha- we don't have two parties in Washington. We have the Washington Party." And I said this in, in, to my friends: We don't have a two-party system anymore. Even though I became a registered Republican in 1969 in the Bronx, you talk about being lonely—a Jewish Republican in the Bronx in the late '60s, <laughs> early '70s. It was it was like being the Maytag repairman. There
1: was nobody around. <laughs> <laughs> we're coming down to the last minute because we want to we want to tell the listeners, or well, we want to explain to the listeners on the History Friday. You're on the National Security Hour with Colonel Mike and Doctor Mike. Our guest today is Murray Saber, and this is our first guest on History Friday. And we're very happy to have him on because it's a very good success story, and it's not about immigration the way we see it today. So, Murray, we got one minute. Uh, Let's just think about this for a second. When we come back after the commercial, we'll get into what your view changed from a Republican and where you went from being a Republican. How's that? Okay, great. All right. So we'll be back right after the commercial. You're on the National Security Hour, America Out Loud, Talk Radio, iHeartRadio Radio Live.
4: Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com code OUTLOUD. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health, and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
1: Welcome back to the National Security Hour. You're on with Dr. Mike and Colonel Mike. We're your host today on History Friday and we're on with our guest Murray Sabrin who has a very very interesting background, immigrant story, not like you see it today coming off the south border. Murray, welcome back. We held Thank that you, door Mike. for Yes, you're welcome. Tell us what you see now, I mean, it's it's a long way. You went from being a Republican. What happened after that? And tell us what, what you see, Dr. Mike and you can josh around on this one, where what we're looking at today coming across the border versus where you were back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. Go ahead. Well, I... Um, uh was eligible to vote in the 1968
2: election. I voted for you at Humphrey, because my father was a Democrat, he was a blue-collar guy, and so I voted Democratic in 1968, the first and last time I voted for a Democrat. I'd been reading Milton Friedman's columns uh, in Newsweek, uh, and and as you know, uh, he was supporting free market uh, ideas, and so I started getting interested in that, and then I read uh, Ayn Rand's Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, which had a collection of essays about why statism, why uh, uh, collectivism is is the wrong way to organize a society, and so I, I, I became a Republican in 1969 and joined the Republican Party in the Bronx. And in 1971, uh, in, when inflation was accelerating, Nixon imposed wage price controls and severed the last link between the dollar and gold. And I said, these people are not serious about the free market set, uh, ideas that they so, supposedly espouse. And earlier that year, I read two articles in the New York Times about libertarianism. And, um, and then in September of 1971, after Nixon did wage price controls, I read Murray Roth essay in the Wall Street and the New York Times, pointing out how uh, Nixon's wage price controls are anathema to anyone who believes in free markets and limited government, and he talked about how we sh- uh, how we need to uh, restore those principles of free enterprise in the country. And uh, in 1972, when I went to graduate school, um, I was looking for a research topic and came across ideas about inflation, which was heating up uh, uh, as the oil crisis. Uh, got worse in 73 and 74. And um, I invited Murray Rothbard to be a member of my dissertation committee at Rutgers. And I wrote a dissertation, even though it was in the geography department, it was about how uh, inflation spreads through the economy and causes all sorts of bad consequences throughout the uh, throughout the us and so that was the foundation of my introduction to austrian economics free market school of uh that has been around since 1870 and uh and then uh libertarianism came into my life uh, reading rothbard's work and other uh, libertarians and so i left the republican party because they were not serious about the things that they say they believe in and i was nowhere politically uh, but i was not interested in politics i was just interested in getting a good education, getting a PhD, and then teaching at the college level. And so uh, the 1970s, as you know, was a very volatile period in terms of uh, the Vietnam War ending in 1975, the second oil crisis in 1979, uh, the hostages in in Iran. And, um, And then I started getting into the workforce, even though I didn't have my PhD completed. And I had a series of jobs, which eventually led to my teaching career in 1985, being at the right place at the right time. And I had a 35 year career teaching finance to under- undergraduates. And I incorporated a lot of the ideas economically and financially in my classroom, which made the classes a lot more interesting than just going over the textbook with students.
1: Okay. Do you remember? You're going to go to Dr. Mike in a second, but do you remember what the interest rate was on homes and automobiles back then in the 70s? Well, Jimmy Carter. Well, let me give you a uh, 1977.
2: We moved to Central Jersey from the Bronx, and uh, my wife and I uh, bought a townhouse. And uh, the mortgage rate was nine percent, and people said this is a very high mortgage rate. And I said, wait to see what happens. And then four years later, it went to eighteen percent. So I was I was ahead of the curve, saying inflation is going to heat up because I saw the Federal Reserve was pumping a lot of money into the economy, and they kept on doing it for several years. And uh, that was the end of that inflation cycle that started of 1965 and ended when Paul Volcker put, really put the squeeze on uh, inflation by raising rates to 18%. And the inflation rate went from 12% down to 3% in two years. It was a great achievement which set the stage for the boom of the 1980s.
1: Mm. So I remember it was 16% for a house and 19% for cars. Mike, go ahead.
3: You know, I always remember reading uh, that when Johnson su- uh, uh, signed the great society bill or bills that he said now for the next 200 years blacks are going to vote democratic yep and uh i'm not sure he used the word black but i no. that was the gist of it and um he seems to have been you know prescient we haven't been anywhere near 200 years but we're over half a century yep and the, the the social fabric of the black community is destroyed. The family is destroyed. The number of uh, unmarried mothers is is astronomical. It it, it just seems to me at, at my ripe old age that anybody who wants more government is is or or debt spending is really uh, uh, twisting the rope around everybody's neck.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: It, it is you, you always notice that the one thing there's never anything about is um the how, what do you use to measure the impact of these of these programs or of this spending they never do that all they say is you know it's going to help this guy and that guy and these people and those people and they never have a tool uh, or, or 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 any any kind of analysis that shows you what really happened as compared to what you said were, was going to happen? It's like when this all of this diversity stuff came in under Clinton, we had, I worked at CIA and we had all kinds of, uh, you know, a two hour uh, diversity session on this and a one hour there and an hour and a half in the other place. And if you wanted to stop them cold, uh, every time, all you had to do was raise your hand, be recognized, and ask them, how are you going to measure these things? And after a few years, how have you measured your accomplishments so uh, uh, so far? And they never had a tool. Mm-hmm. And at, at last they only came up with, uh, well, we have so many greens and whites and blacks and yellows and purples. And it, it had nothing to do with the ability to do the work. It had to, everything to do with just numbers of different kinds of people. And I think it's the same way. We, we look at look at the medical system, look at the look at the Veterans Administration. They pump all kinds of money into there, and we have kids blowing their brains out every day now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is. Uh, it seems to be not responsible government, but irresponsible government.
2: Well, you make a great point, Michael, and uh, when I retired in July of 2020, and I was at the college for 35 years, the business school when I first got there was basically all white males and a, a couple females, a couple, uh, one or two black professors. When I left, the business faculty at Ramapo College, despite not having any, quote, um, a quotas or affirmative action for hiring, it was as diverse as you could possibly get. This is the organic way of of, uh, of a free society where hiring is done not on the basis of a gender, ethnicity or anything like that, or race, but based upon who's the best qualified. And it so happened that we, if you look at the Rampo College Business School with about 40, 45 faculty members, I would say we probably have more uh, people from different Parts of the world than virtually any uh, business school or uh, uh, school within any university in the country. I mean, it's amazing. We have people from East Europe, West Europe, Asia, Africa, um, South America, Central America. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, uh, if you will, a rainbow of, of people and uh, m- more women. Right now, I think there were 50% women were in. Uh, business professors, when, when I started there, I think it was maybe 10%, not even 10%. So it shows you over time, things get sorted out very nicely without having sort of top-down approach. And uh, this is the thing that's really disturbing is that uh, uh, identity politics and identity hiring is more important than uh, than merit. And uh, if you go down that slope, it's going to be really, uh, because we don't want uh, a, a doctor uh, there because of some sort of box that was checked off
1: by the uh, admissions committee. In Absolutely. The Absolutely. And this yeah. is where we are. I mean, this is, we just had last month, black history month. Now we have women's history month and uh, you know, everybody's got to break a glass ceiling. Now I, you know, I worked around women in my career and I say, you know, some of them are real smart and some of them are real dumb, like white, you know, men or black men, you know, but you know, now it's just pushing the envelope that you have to have, you have to have, and you know, you're right. You don't want somebody ripping your brain out or flying a plane right. because it check the box. And Murray, I'll just give you a little statistic. of. In, on history, by the way, you're on the National Security Hour on America Out Loud. You're on with Murray Sabrin, our guest, Dr. Mike, and Colonel Mike, your hosts. Um, just about three weeks ago, I heard something with these uh, community uh, colleges and high schools where they were putting young students, in their teens, late teens, into these uh, simulators, flight simulators. One guy had 103 crashes in one hour just one hour. So this is what they're looking at. They're looking to pull them out of high schools and, and uh, commercial schools, trade schools, and make them pilots. It's that bad. And this is uh, very dangerous for our country, very dangerous for world travel. you know. But continue on on the uh, History uh, Friday and let us know a little bit more about your immigration.
2: Well, the immigration was, I think, exemplary because my father was a partisan commander in his native Poland, and he was a partisan leader for uh, for a year, from July of nineteen forty three to July of nineteen forty four, when the Soviet army liberated his uh, uh, section of Poland. And um, at the at when it was liberated, uh, uh, a Russian colonel uh, came to him and said. Uh, We uh, understand that uh, you fought heroically in Poland. We'd like you to go on a mission in Germany. And he said, well, I'm married. I have a a young son. Uh, For me, the war is over. And he writes this in his memoir called We Dare to Live. And um, I, I read, when I read it, all the stories that he told me when he was alive, are in the book, but he didn't tell me this story, and the story is very simple. The uh, the uh, group that the uh, colonel, the Russian colonel, asked to paratroop into Germany on a mission. Ninety percent of them were killed, and um, when I read that, uh, boy, did the hairs go up on my back, that and my neck. That uh, if he had accepted that mission, uh, the high probability he wouldn't have survived it, and we wouldn't be having this conversation.
5: Yeah.
3: It's you know that that's I think that's the point the point you made, Mary, is 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 a a perfect point and a a true point that if if diversity occurs naturally because of merit, that's uh, one thing. When it's forced, it's destructive on society. It's destructive Mm -hmm. on the economy. It's it's uh, life threatening at times, and it causes conflict. It causes polarization. It causes conflict and also the 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 degradation of our education system yeah. uh now it leaves us in the place where i, I imagine that when you get re- um, applicants for positions now you get some that you wonder why they even bothered uh because they don't know their history or they don't know their math or or uh, you know, years ago now, two, three years ago, the, they they polled the uh, leading CEOs in the country and they said, asked them, what are you looking for? And the answer was people from the hard sciences and people who can be punctual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we're not preparing a workforce. We're preparing someone who is entitled to yeah. a job because they happen to be there. It's it's. The, the only bright side of all of this, even under Biden, is that most of our problems are, are man-made.
2: Oh, no question about it.
3: it. Yeah. It's not the result of a war. It's not the result of earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes. It's, I, I'm afraid, the result of crooked politicians putting their own future, their own money over the, over the, um, uh, over the nation, over, say, over protecting the nation. And more recently, uh, their desire to pit blacks against whites and whites against Asians and Asians against other people and and, uh, for all for the worse. But it but it all comes down to human beings in part.
1: But I think, Mike, I think uh, and Murray, I think in our generation, it went from civil servants or civil service to oligarchs Mm -hmm. just in, in one generation, you know. Oh, there's no
2: question about it. Let me give you an example of a little history about uh, New York City higher education. I graduated in 1968, and I was, um, and then I uh, went to uh, Lehman when, when uh, Hunter College uh, uh, in the Bronx became a, a separate uh, unit of the City University. And I had a lovely history professor, uh, a European history professor, and I met her one afternoon. We were just walking on campus with a friend of mine, and she said they were, the pers- professors were really getting nervous because the New York City decided to have quote open enrollment in 1975 as part of the uh, culture of the time that uh, everyone should be able to go to college. And so they moved it up to 1970 because there was so much political pressure to open up the colleges to to people, uh, even though they may not be as qualified as they were prior to open enrollment. And so community college had... pure open enrollment that anyone can go, no matter what your grades were, that the senior colleges, you know, City University, uh, City College, Brooklyn College, Queens College, Hunter College, uh, Lehman College, uh, you still had to have, I think, a fairly uh, high um, uh, bar to, to get into those uh, institutions. But, the, but the, got, the die was cast that colleges should be an entitlement, just as uh, public schools with compulsory education were uh, available. And so this is how you corrupt public education, plus the government get involved with what student loans, and that is the moral hazard we have not only in education but throughout the society.
1: I, I just start something. Reagan, Mike. I would say that the
3: Department of Education is also a cancer on this society. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I think, think of it. Reagan it. ran on a platform of getting rid of the Department of Educa- Education and the Department of Energy, uh, two agencies that have no constitutional authority to exist, and yet here they are, forty some odd years later, and they're still. Uh, and they're both
3: choking us to death.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is why Republicans have failed us miserably. They can't get rid of two agencies that have no constitutional uh, foundation.
1: I just read something also. They're going to use Pell Grants now for something outside the education system. They're going to give Pell Grants. It's just madness. It's madness. And now and now we're, we're we're looking at trillions of dollars in student debt. Murray, what do you say about that? Well, the 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 unfortunate thing is that, uh, was it 15,
2: 18 years ago, uh, st- there was a law passed that said that students cannot uh, declare bankruptcy and wipe out their student debt, which is what happens uh, throughout society and the commercial sector, that if you can't pay your debts, you can declare bankruptcy and those debts get wiped out. So again, here's another example of the banks and the federal government putting a squeeze on students because students are, are taking out these outrageous loan amounts in order to get a degree. Uh, Uh, that is totally useless when they get out of college. So uh, uh, college should not be as expensive as it is today. And, And that's because administrations throughout the country have increased so much faster than student enrollment. We're paying so much money for administration. And, uh, and faculty uh, are complaining about it as they were at Rampo College when I was there. I mean this is what this is what uh, happens is Empire building in, uh, in the higher education, in the corporate world as well as uh, local government, state government, federal government. This is the iron law of bureaucracy. build up your empire so you have more control prestige and income.
1: All right, hold that thought. We're coming up on commercial. you're on America out loud. the national security hour, history Friday, you're on with your host. Dr. Michael Scheuer and Colonel Mike, and today we're happy to have with us, Murray Sabrin. Great uh, stroll down history lane. We're all about the same age, right? Correct? Um, And I think we all grew up around the same time. We'll be back after commercial.
0: For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America Climate Plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com.
5: We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? and effectively clean. Not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today.
1: We're on the final segment. Welcome back to America Out Loud Talk Radio with liberty and justice for all. You're on the National Security Hour with your hosts, Dr. Michael Scheuer and Colonel Mike. And we're happy to have back with us last segment, final segment, Marie Sabrin, who also has a new book out. We'll talk about that just before we go off the air. But again, don't forget, we're on iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, all the apps. Just go to AmericaOutLoud.com 24-7 where you will get the news, the greatest and the latest, and you're going to get some great shows. We're on Monday to Friday, 7 p.m., the National Security Hour. Many good shows, many good hosts, and we're happy to be on, pitching in on History Friday. righty. so now let's go back to Dr. Mike and Murray Sabrin. Murray, come on back. I'm here. righty. so how do you want to finalize? This is our final hour, so let's go a little bit further down the pike, and let's talk about what happened post Reaganite, and what's happening? And Ron Paul, let's talk about Ron Paul. Well, yeah, I met Ron Paul at
2: a conference in Washington D.C. in the early '80s, and uh, I was—I I heard about him. I think two years earlier, when I was at a conference in Maine, and I was sitting with Murray Rothbard uh, during one of the sessions. We skipped out on one of the sessions, and uh, we were talking about. Um, economics finance politics and he said there's a great congressman from texas who's a libertarian he understands austrian economics and he's a republican so i said that's wonderful that's wonderful and then two years later i i had a chance to meet with him and um at, at ramapo college in 1986 i hosted a, 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 a two-credit course where i brought in speakers uh, every week to discuss all the issues facing the country at the time and one of the speakers was ron paul who already uh, left uh, his um, a congressional seat that was back at at private practice. And he talked about uh, the country and where it's headed. And then then two years later, he ran for uh, president on the the, uh, Libertarian Party ticket and then came back to Congress in the 1990s. And so uh, I was speaking to him uh, frequently. I was uh, donating to his campaign. Even though I lived in uh, New Jersey at the time, I thought having his voice in Congress was important because he was so prescient on the economy, on foreign policy, that the Iraq war was going to be a disaster, that all this money printing by the Fed was going to be a disaster. And so he was way ahead of his time and he uh, educated as many people in Congress, but it seems that they're not very good learners because they didn't learn anything from him or at least didn't embrace his idea is because if they did, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today and so with endless wars and endless money printing and uh, nonstop spending and uh, continued Fed manipulation of uh, interest rates. So he, he was uh, a giant in the Congress, probably one of the most important heroic figures in, in the 200 plus years that the Congress has uh, existed. And so uh, he will go down in history as one of the most important voices for uh, uh, liberty and uh, a non-interventionist foreign policy. Dr. Mike.
3: Yeah, he's he's a tremendous man and a courageous man. And it, it always seems that the people who oppose war are among the most articulate and commonsensical. And it ought to I, I wish it was uh, uh contagious that it would, it would spread to other people, but it but it doesn't. And now we here we are again, uh, another human-made problem, uh with $200 dollars almost given out to the uh ukrainians for purposes which are uh just unidentifiable and and yet uh it go on and on and on and on with it and i don't know uh, mr sabrin how do we uh, oh i i i would like to have your view anyway and how would do we turn this back we can't trust our elections yeah we're in debt over our head what what comes next or what Do we just kind of quietly go into this uh, quicksand?
2: Well, th- th- this is why I'm doing what I'm doing in my uh, retirement, my college retirement uh, years, is to uh, try to sound the alarm uh, around the country uh, through podcasts, through uh, interviews on radio, TV, and uh, articles and books, my Substack column, because it's important that people get educated. And um, certainly the politicians are not going to change their tune because they're, they're too uh, too tied into the uh, uh, Financial elites and the political elites around the country who want to continue the welfare warfare state. So, we have a lot of work to do in terms of ed- educating the public. The media are no help because they're really in the pockets of um, big government. And so, uh, this has to be a grassroots, uh, uh, bottoms up approach. And um, one day uh, we may see something that we saw out of v for Vendetta, that final scene where people just go to the streets and just say no, take a knee and just say, we don't want big government anymore. But that's tough to, in our economy because so many people benefit from big government. It's the seniors with Social Security and Medicare. It's it's uh, low-income folks with Medicaid and all the other uh, programs for low-income f- folks. Then you have the middle class who thinks that um, uh, these entitlements are worthwhile. Then you have the corporate sector that loves all the subsidies. So we have this widespread... Uh, dependency on on big government and the only thing that I can see happening in the future that would make people change their tune is we educate them now and when the big crisis comes down the road, which I think is going to happen within 10, 15 years, if not sooner, because the economy is like a rubber band. Or I right. should say, big government is like a rubber band. You keep on stretching it and stretching it and stretching it, and eventually breaks. And so, the more the more they spend, the more they print money, the more they uh, uh, intervene overseas, uh, the economy will get worse and worse over time. And then, when you have massive stagnation and high inflation, uh, that's a recipe for a major economic and social change, and uh, and uh, hopefully political change as well. Because this, we know, this is unsustainable. What we have today. The question is, when does it end? And it ends, for, from my perspective of reading history, is when the dollar is no longer as widespread in demand uh, as it is now overseas. And that's when it's checkmate, when foreigners are not buying our debt, they're not holding on to our dollars. And then uh, we have
1: a real problem on, on our hands. I'm glad you mentioned that, Murray. I want to say that. On the war money, the money we're spending on the war, like Mike said, $200 billion. I don't think people realize we pay interest on that money. Yep, yep. <laughs> so we're we're financing this 200 billion dollars. Now, you did say everybody's dependent on the government. OK, I, I, I get that. Uh, the safety net that we we always were told since we're young, the safety net for people that can't take care of themselves. That used to be left up to the churches. That right. used to be left up to charity, Salvation Army kind of things. Right. Then right. the government got in that business. And then you have Lutheran services, Catholic services, and they're they're assisting all this immigration because they get per head just like the cartels do down you know, below Mexico. Right. So here's where, here's where I draw the line. The seniors who depend on the Social Security or the Medicare system, they will promise that not as a free ride. They put money into it. Right. And you and I both remember, and Mike remembers, There was a story called Social Security that when you get so much, you know, 62, 67, whatever, you're going to collect on this money. Had they let us invest our own money, right, whatever annuities, whatever we wanted to do, savings, whatever, uh, stocks, bonds, and we would have all retired very, very wealthy Mm -hmm. just on that alone, not even, you know, our other investments, right? So if we would have took that money that we gave this government that promised us something that was worth, I mean, it's not even worth the dollar anymore, right? But the, the point is, after all these years, some people are living in Florida, old people, at six, $700 a month. They can't even pay rent on that, right? Years ago, I remember there was people robbing tuna fish cans in grocery stores to eat, okay? So they lied to us, and they had this Ted Kennedy kind of thing called the lockbox. And we would just, they would borrow from the lockbox and put a chit in there, yep. and then- you would pay back the lockbox. And now they're talking about maybe in two years, and now they're negotiating on the Hill about cutting Social Security. I think they should be working for free. I think they should cut how many uh, congressmen we have. I think they should cut a lot more, and they should cut a lot of the BS out because you just can't say to these people who are dependent on this, who worked 30, 40, whatever, how many years that we're going to cut, and give these new people coming in, which your father didn't get, which you didn't get, and our grandfathers didn't get, $4,000 a month mm-hmm. to live here free, you know, plus all the other benefits, you know, drop a baby, free hospitalization. There's nothing free, Murray. You know that. You're a libertarian. Somebody's paying for it somewhere. Sure. Hospitals well, built. I mean, you know how many hospitals were going to go broke, Murray, before COVID? Yeah. Do you have any idea in this country how many hospitals were, were broke or going broke? Yeah. It's, COVID it's, bailed out every hospital. Yep, they gave uh, all this CARES Act money. Go well, ahead. The- this is why
2: healthcare has become quasi-nationalized. Um, I've been writing about, uh, in two books, uh, how we can reform the healthcare system to restore the doctor-patient relationship, which is the foundation of medical care. And, and, and the ir- irony is that um, they want the ex- uh, government has been expanding insur- uh, insurance with Obamacare when the reality is we're overinsured. We don't need insurance to go see a doctor for a sore throat or an earache or, or an ankle injury. We need insurance for the big stuff in case we have a major illness, and even that can be reduced in price with uh, such as the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, where they charge a fraction of what hospitals do for major operations. Um, A quick example, um, I I met a doctor down in here in Southwest Florida, and she had a patient who didn't have insurance, and he needed some sort of operation. A local hospital quoted him $20,000. She said, why don't you contact the Surgery Center of Oklahoma? And they quoted him a price of $5,000, including the stay in Oklahoma and the transportation, the whole thing. Uh, a 75% discount or more from what the hospital was. So imagine if we had these all throughout the country, uh, uh, that hospital bill would, would be going down for everybody. We have a $4 trillion medical care bill in this country, and it's so outrageous. It's nearly 20% of GDP, the highest of any country in the world, and people still have chronic illnesses. So we have sick care in America instead of healthcare, where the doctors should be helping people stay healthy so they don't have to see the doctor, and you only need the doctor in case of an accident or some chronic condition that you develop, because a lot of these chronic conditions come from lifestyle um, choices. Mm Mm-hmm. Have you, you know,
1: ever seen so many of be I'm sorry, Mike, go ahead.
3: No, no. I was just going to say on, on, they never miss a chance to pit people against each other. I don't know. I, I've just noticed it in the last six months or so, but they have uh, commercials that run uh, of old people wanting more and more and more in the, their social security. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was a kid and you you grew up, your parents took it on the chin for you. And I don't ever remember my father saying, okay, now you've got to pay me back. Mm -hmm. And now these elderly people and they get very old people or of all colors and races. But they're, they're like, you know, no matter what you have to do for a living and whether you make enough money, you ought to be giving me more money. And it's really a a kind of a a change in the American culture. Uh, You know, if if somebody, if a a retiree needs uh, money, then the the kids ought to uh, take care of that, not via taxes, but via help for their parents. It's extraordinary to me.
2: Well, this is why one of the themes of my campaign to, quote, restore the republic through the media is that we need financial independence. People are not realizing that financial independence goes with political independence, which is what the revolution was fought about. And so uh in my on my Substack column, I've written how we can phase out Social Security Medicare and Medicaid so young people will be financially independent in their senior years and low income folks would get the the, the health care they need if they can't pay for it through the nonprofit health centers that we could create all across the country. I helped create one in Bergen County, New Jersey. I was a founding trustee, the founder invited me to uh uh Participate in creating the center, which uh, went, uh, which uh, opened up in t- 2009, and they're doing a fantastic job of help saving people's lives. And doctors love it because there's no insurance forms, no nothing, no uh, no government oversight for the most part. It's all nonprofit, voluntary action. This is the culture of America before the Great Depression of local action to solve local problems, yep. not this top-down approach of the welfare state that we have today.
3: And, and the, one of the greatest things that that gets ripped apart is when Bill Kaufman or somebody else writes about the importance of place mm-hmm. the importance of local loyalties and local uh, uh, local pe- people helping their neighbors. And that gets ripped to pieces by by the elite and by the government and by everybody else. But Kaufman is right. He's right to the he's right right down to the bone.
2: Th- this is the original vision of the founders is local solutions, local action to deal with local uh, issues that come up. And whether it's education, housing, transportation, uh, the re- if the resources don't go to Washington or the state capital, they have to stay locally. And if people of good will, will and entrepreneurs will do what's necessary to build a vibrant community. <laughs> That's the way America evolved for so many d- decades. And we need to restore that culture in America. And so, uh,
1: All right, gentlemen. And we're coming down to the last four minutes. Uh, Mike, you go first, Murray, and then we'll close it out. And I want to thank Murray for coming on the National Security Hour History Friday with Colonel Mike and Dr. Mike, your host today, on the National Security Hour, Monday to Friday, 7 p.m., America Out Loud Talk Radio with Liberty and justice for all. Go ahead, Murray, or Mike, who wants to go first?
0: Yeah, I I
3: was just going to say, Murray, after after all of what people have listened to this, or will listen to from this afternoon, please give us the name of the book, the publisher, and where people can get it.
2: Sure, it's called from... um... Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story, who was published by Talkers, uh, Talkers, which is the, uh, uh, by Michael Harrison, the publisher who wrote the foreword. Talkers.com is the Bible of talk radio. And uh, uh, I, I have a, a campaign uh, through Talkers to uh, reach as many people as possible through the talk show uh, uh, sector in our economy and it's available on Amazon and uh, my other books are available there on healthcare, on the boom bust cycle on the Federal Reserve and uh, taxation so we have we have an opportunity to turn the ship around because there are people of goodwill who understand the issues and as you know it only takes a small minority to have an impact on the economy and on uh ideas and uh, this is why uh being in, in the college classroom for 35 years You really get a chance to interact with students and show them not from a propaganda point of view, just from a common sense teaching point of view, pedagogical point of view, how society has evolved and what are the tools you need in order to run a business successfully from the financial end and how our financial system evolved and why we've had these crises throughout American history and that the Federal Reserve was not the savior that the people thought it would be because it wasn't intended to be our savior. It was intended to be the the, uh, backstop for the big banks who engage in a, a very dubious practice called fractional reserve banking. And the Federal Reserve has now taken upon itself to manage the economy. No central entity can manage a $20 trillion plus economy. It's a form of central planning. And um, Ron Paul and others have done their job in the Congress when uh, he was there to uh, educate uh, his fellow colleagues about that. But uh, we still have uh, the opportunity to reach as many people as possible. And I hope this book has a wide reading because it shows my journey from a liberal Democrat in the 1960s to a Republican to a a libertarian, small L. And, of course, I ran as a Republican and a libertarian in New Jersey. All right.
1: Got to stop you right there, Murray. I got to stop you right there. One question. Did you ever see Murray the K when you were in New York? No, I used to listen to him all the time. <laughs> ah, he was at the RKO. You missed it. Rolling yes. Stones, Dave Clark, five. We're going to close it out on the National Security Hour, America Out Loud. Talk radio on iHeartRadio, where you come for the truth.
3: God bless I'm you, Murray.
1: So happy. Yes, you. and on History Friday, we're happy to have Murray. We're going to close it out. Thank you, Dr. Mike, for coming back on. Thank you, Murray Sebrin. It was great having you on, talking about history and your 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 trek from overseas coming to america coming through the front door as we say and again we'll be back on monday we're on monday to friday america out loud talk radio national security hour 7 p.m your host dr mike and colonel mike